0: Hello, for Ta listeners. After a much anticipated return, we are finally back in action and psyched to continue delivering genuine and insightful stories for women in China. I'm Juliana, your host. Today we had a chance to chat with Miranda Wong, biologist, environmental advocate, and entrepreneur. As co-founder and CEO of Bioselection, she aims to turn plastic waste into a concept of the past through innovation. We discuss why culture is a product of design and why she's so rebellious, and even get into some technical aspects of plastic recycling. Worth the listen. Let's check it out. Hey, Miranda, we are very excited to have you on the show today. Right now, we are sitting at the Shangri-La Hotel in Guilin, looking out at this beautiful view. We had the chance over the past couple of days to attend the Integral Conversation hosted by Escal Group, where I also had the pleasure of watching you present during one of the panel presentations. So based on that, let's get this started.
1: Thank you, Juliana. It was a really great opportunity to come here and I met some very amazing people.
0: I think to start us off, can you just give us a simple 30-second pitch of bioselection? What do you do?
1: I'll give a really short um, summary about what what we're doing. Uh, So BioSelection is a startup that I created uh, a little over two years ago, and we're developing a technology that can turn currently unrecyclable plastic waste into chemicals um, that can feed into various industries.
0: Yeah, I actually really want to just dive right in and ask you more about your experience with BioSelection, a company that you started. It's really impressive, not only just from a technology perspective, but also starting a company from scratch and getting it going. So could you actually tell me more about the original reason why you want to start BioSelection?
1: This company um, was uh, my my co-founder and I have always been involved in sustainability. So this is actually something that we started working on. We conceived the idea in, in high school. Um, and initially this started as a field trip to a waste transfer station in Vancouver, Canada, which is our hometown um, at the time, and um, really understanding how the plastic problem is is one of the biggest issues for our generation, and then later seeing the bigger picture of how this waste goes into the oceans, enters our food chains, causes disease. Um, it's, it's an issue that you know we have, gotten quite obsessive about uh, because it, it seems like the impact is, is definitely going to be huge and it, it desperately needs innovation.
0: Can you help break down a little bit more of the technical aspects of bioselection? What does the company do?
1: We invented a chemical technology. It's a proprietary chemical reaction that can turn unrecycled plastic trash that's contaminated plastics like plastic films plastic wrapping, and packaging, um, and we turn these materials that would otherwise be sent to the landfill, or you would see that, you know, it would end up in the oceans, especially in the Asian areas. Um, we turn this material into chemicals, um, namely adipic acid and succinic acid. These two chemicals are extremely versatile precursor chemicals. They look like, you know, table salt. They're white crystalline powders. And they can be used precursors for synthetic f- fabrics like nylons and polyester, polyurethane, uh, like synthetic leather. Um, as well as uh, they can actually be used to make compostable plastic. So we can turn uh, non biodegradable plastics, like pla- you know plastic pollution that will usually take a thousand years to rot on their own, um, and we can turn that plastic into material to make compostable plastic that will break down in a matter matter of half a year. Um, so, so that's, that's what our technology is doing, and there are also other opportunities in terms of what else it can do, um, because our, our process actually, from, our, from the 300 plus experiments that we have done, if we terminate the reaction actually before it goes to full completion to drive the plastics down to these chemicals, they actually, um, if we stop it in between, the reactions actually generate new, new types of materials, some of which are, are, are glues, Um, that could also have very interesting applications in industries like automobiles or interior design. Mm.
0: I think actually one of the biggest myths to me that you dispelled was that when I recycle at home, that not everything actually goes to become another second-generation product. Uh, Was that surprising to you when you first learned it? Do most people know that? Was I just the only one that was like, oh, if I put my... Water bottle in the recycling thing at school or at home, it's going to eventually turn into a, a jacket or something.
1: Yes, yeah, so most people don't know that.
0: Um, okay, that makes me feel a little better.
1: <laughs> and it's not by accident. Um, so there's a lot of um, negativity around kind of being transparent in the waste industry. And I think that's getting better, especially in California. But people generally regard waste as something they should hide away. So you know the city government is not going to actually tell their residents what their recycling their actual recycling rates are so i i i can dive into this a little bit more um please do yeah globally you know only 4 to 8% and when i say 4 to 8% because it's about 8% of all plastics that we produce gets recycled and this is specifically plastic packaging which is of interest here because plastic packaging is generally single use because it supports a throwaway lifestyle and most of this material 90, loses 95% of its value after the first use. Um, so, only about 8% of plastic packaging produced gets recycled. Um, 86% gets landfilled or ends up in the oceans. Um, and we're talking about a total amount of 78 million tons per year right now. This is just packaging, there are other types of plastics. Plastics, uh, you know, our world is taken over by like, different kinds of plastics. Huge industry. Right yeah, so how it works in the U.S. is uh, when a, a resident puts you know, recycling into the bin, just because you're putting it into the bin, it doesn't mean really anything. All it means is that the private hauler, the waste company for your area, uh, will come and pick it up and centralize the waste and sort whatever they can and, and remove whatever they can of value from that mix. Um, and they will have their downstream buyers will buy the valuable metals, glass, Um, cardboard paper, and uh, the rest that's left are plastics. So number one and two plastics, which are, you know, the the PET for clean water bottles, and also the um, more rigid kind of, these are really like clean plastics, mostly used for water packaging. That has pretty high recyclability. Um, That that type of plastic generally creates a pretty good, you know, structurally a strong product in the second generation. So that has a higher recyclability. Um, whereas other plastics numbers 3 through 7s actually are not recyclable because they just have so much diversity in the in the way they're made. For example, you can have a Pantene container, a Pantene shampoo container um, that is do you know a,
0: what number it is?
1: So it, it totally depends on what type. If it's oh, shampoo, wow. it could be it could be HDPE, right? But um, so that's high density polyethylene, but they could put so many additives in there. For example, to give it the sh- the, sh- the shimmer on the bottle, because sometimes it makes you want when they when they have the sleek kind of uh, shampoo. Community, sleek
0: like, bottle, sleek yeah. hair.
1: So that bottle is not just a high density polyethylene bottle. It's also the other additives. So you can think of other things that are high density polyethylene, but don't have that product didn't need to have the shimmer and the hardening. Then that would be a different type of plastic. So so these materials are generally extremely. Um, contaminated too with food or you know what are the other kind of like detergents or products inside so generally right now there's no real recycling market for any of the numbers three through seven plastics there's majority plastics out there the four to eight percent that's recycled are most mostly the uh, water bottles and it's four to eight because eight percent is what's recycled but four percent is loss to energy uh, is loss to inefficiency. so so it's uh, debatable how much it's, it's, it's likely somewhere between four to eight percent um, globally. And these are these are stats from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, uh, which is a nonprofit that uh, actually commissioned research by McKinsey to get all of these stats. and this is the first look. This, these results came out in the 20, in 2016 their circular economy document that you know is, is online for everyone to look at. But this is really the first time we've gotten a deeper look at what the plastic economy looks like today. Right. It's largely a throwaway single lifetime from, you know, what they call linear life cycle.
0: But being in such a traditional industry like waste management, what's it like being a woman in that industry, running a company, obviously making some ground there? Um, How do you manage maybe dealing with that identity in that space?
1: So I think this identity of being a young uh, Chinese woman founder in um, Silicon Valley and working on a company that is uh, heavily technical, also looking at being heavily operational, it's it's not actually um, you know it's it's hard and it's also in some ways good for us. So I'll talk a little bit about how it's hard, and I think you know it's not probably not too difficult to see why. know we're not really we don't really fit into the normal cookie cutter for entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley Um, however that is is slowly changing and and there are quite a few investors in the the area that are um, you know not concerned about the fact that we're women it's more about you know do you have the other necessary experience and um, gray-haired leadership on the board (laughs) are you able to bring them together Um, and and really recruit the right people to execute. And I think there is a great level of truth in that you can't defy, you know, all odds to do something. You can't, there, there, you know, there are many paths that you can take to succeed. um, And most of them would actually entail having the right people, meaning, you know, if you're going to work with customers who are very traditional and, you know, old men, then, then you need to have some of that represented on your board so they can connect and that, that rapport and trust can be there. So, so that is definitely uh, something that would increase chances of success. But I think more and more now, at least in where I'm working and the investors I talk to, people are giving the opportunity for the founders of the team, and the CEO of the team, to be a slightly different, you know, from a slightly different demographic. Um, something that has made. Uh, life easy for us, um, you know, being women, uh, is that it actually, uh, catches people's attention a lot. So in our case, when we request to visit a waste plant for a tour or, um, you know, we really like try to show up at places where women, you know, people like us never go.
0: It must catch people off guard a little it bit. It people this. off
1: guard. And also what happens is people don't, um, automatically assume anything about you. Um, in the sense oh you're just another equipment seller oh you're just another you know so and so they kind of don't know what you want from them and what you're going to offer and the fact you know they've given this you know their their facility tour hundreds of times and then we're there and all of a sudden they're like they're like we don't really know how to like you know accommodate, you. Know, um. You know, so, so it's, um, it's kind of interesting because it, it gives new opportunities to connect with people. That's the way I see it. Yeah. Um, and also it's um, a way to, you know, I've always been a person where I like to push the boundaries of what people assume of others. Um, and I have, you know, lived in many countries, had many cross-cultural uh, experiences in my life. So I, I really like being the person. You know, it's, it's not easy being the first one that kind of goes against the flow or sticks out but um in this context i actually feel i can sense a change when i go into those environments and i feel the you know the operators of these sites are you know at the end of the, at the end of the conversation we reach mutual respect right for each other and it's a very good feeling to see how they have made an impact on us and shared knowledge with us and we have also made an impact on them
0: yeah i think you mentioned that you have a little bit of a rebellious side to yourself <laughs> uh how do you think that helps you in building and starting a company
1: I think a lot of it is a ability to trust your uh, natural instinct actually I think a lot of what rebellion is is you have a strong sense of what is right or wrong what you want to be part of and what you don't and you know why and that thought is obsessive to you like you cannot forget the thought once you see it that way So for me, I'm very much a person like that. I I can't, I can't unlearn many things easily. (laughs) That might be kind of an issue. If I could, I think a lot of things in my life would be much easier for me. Um, But in my situation, you know, I just don't, I just don't take part in things that I I don't agree with. Um, And I'm starting to learn. I think one of the most important things is to learn what compromise and working with other people who are different means and um, color is a great time for that because I went to, you know, Penn was a very diverse place. Um, but I think a lot of it still comes down to values, um, to principles. And, uh, that's definitely something, you know, I, I, care about a lot when we think about what kind of a company we're building, who we are, what our values are, and does that actually align with the type of business objectives we have. For example, recently, you know, I really can have given a lot of thought about company values, um, you can have two values in opposite extremes and neither are bad. For example, you can say, we really value fast fail or fast validation. So doing something fast and failing it if it doesn't work. On the other side, you can say, we really value taking time to do something carefully, planning, and thinking through things. Both are great values, but you can't... But both values... It's very difficult for both values to coexist in a story. Right. So, so a lot of the times, the values you pick the principles you pick have to really align with their business objectives too.
0: Right. And how people develop their own values has always been really interesting to me because it's very much, I think, a product of where you come from, your parents, a life-changing experience, and how people at our age really believe strongly certain things and how they get to that point. Um, but I think you talk a lot about how you have this gut instinct, how you want to hire people that fit with your company. How do you know that someone's the right talent? Because you have a small team.
1: So I've uh, definitely made mistakes in hiring um, before, but I've also done some things that turn out to be right. And actually what I've learned is, um, even for hiring for a technical role, um, of course, I think the, most, the, the first thing that... Uh, you know, a startup founder or a company would do is to have a list of skills that they look for. Um, and they put that on the job description and out they go to find someone on LinkedIn. Um, that method doesn't really work for us. Um, and I think other people might have had success, but from actually discussions with other founders, what I've learned is a lot of the time is really about finding the, the people who have that baseline level shared values who are, who are able to be generalists um, at the things that they do every day, who who put the team in front of themselves and their own interests um, because they just believe in it that much, um, because they just, you know, they love this team and this is what they want to they want to do for more than 9 to 5 every day. Um, so that's actually who I look for first in terms of gut feeling is does this person have a shared collective sense of, um, you know, are they you know are they actually not just a team player but they will they will be flexible in terms of when they should lead and when they should be on support they, it, it's this natural instinct and, and i think you can tell very quickly whether someone is that because it's kind of um it's a skill that you you don't just learn you have to have been in a group previously that function in that way for you to know what that feels like and uh, or you have to have you know, previously been in a leadership position where you try to cultivate that type of culture for you to understand what that feels like. So um, I think it's very easy to be able to tell. That's the first thing I look for. Um, And then obviously there are the technical uh, skills and objectives. So you can see how hiring, finding the right people for a startup is very hard because my my understanding is that, you know, really the first 15 people you hire will hire everybody else for your organization.
0: Oh, that's an interesting piece of advice. Did another startup founder give that to you?
1: so this is actually um, uh, wisdom from a um, consultant I've met in, in the Bay Area and he actually focuses his whole career on hiring of uh, team members for startups uh, So if you think about you know companies like um, you know like the Google's the Amazons think about how many people they have, Um, how do they, you know, culture is not something you build overnight, you have to build over a long period of time, and it has to be by design. For example, you can have two equally good values, like I was mentioning earlier, but by design means your company would have to actively choose um, an early stage where, when you're not just your co-founders, but you're a couple of people, and you're working together, you know, with a good level of synergy, so for you have a very candid discussion about what should be the values of the company, and that's by design. Um, so these this first group of people, they are the ones who are going to, you know, share these values uh, with the people who come in.
0: Right. So the first person that you hired or worked with for your company, Jenny, she must be really important to the core of the company.
1: Yeah. So Jeannie is my co-founder. We have almost a uh, equal split in our ownership. Um, so I did actually have to convince her really? to, to work with me. What, yeah. were her, what, what was
0: holding her back?
1: It took her three days to make, uh, the final decision. And, but actually, you know, um, we, we were Skyping and we've been brainstorming about this venture for a while, but, you know, she's actually, she personally decided to go in. Um, I think it was like instantaneously, it was, you know, very, very fast decision, but she wanted three days to, to think about it. Um, to make sure at the end of the three days that she didn't want to change her mind. So I was very nervous at that time. <laughs> I was thinking, had some idea of what it would be because I was doing case studies at school. I was thinking if I were going to do it, the only person I would go on this journey with would be Jeannie. Um, so so her decision was going to have a massive impact on my career and my life. Uh, I was very nervous. And three days later, she called me and um, you know she told me, you know, she kept thinking about it over and over again, and she just knew that, that this this was the right <laughs> this is the right thing for us to do together. And the two of us have actually always known, um, ever since we went away for college, and because we were working on this previously in high school, um, that we would come back together and work on something. So this was uh, it was actually a relief to finally be able to execute on that on that feeling.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people talk often about how important it is to have women mentorship, but I don't think people talk as much about how important it is to have women partnership or support and collaboration with other female peers. Um, I think there's just been this obsession in the media that women have to get a mentor, and that's the person that's going to help them professionally. But what's it like having a really strong female partnership where you're supporting each other, probably professionally and personally, and I'm guessing that that's helpful for you in many aspects of your life.
1: Yeah, so Jeannie is uh, my co-founder, my best friend, and in many ways my soulmate. Um, and it's a very, very unique relationship. Um, so, you know, for for us, we have our relationship has grown as we have grown. In the beginning, uh, we were just best friends, and then, uh, you know... We, we don't always grow at equal rates, too. <laughs> that's that's the other thing. And, and and there are many aspects of life. It's not just your, your career or whatever project aspect that you interact with the project. You also have other aspects of your personal life. So for me, um, you know, it, it's been um, very interesting to see how, how our dynamics have changed over time. So, for example, when we just started, it was much more of a uh, kind of... A, a very equal and uh, it was based on it was based on fun and free time sort sort of relationship. Um, a lot of it was about fun and enjoyment. And then it became more and more serious about what are we creating. Um, and now is the point where we, we know what we're doing is going to be um, you know, one of not the most important work that we're going to be that we're going to be giving, you know, in our in our lives. Knowing that it's, you know, we're we're going to if we miss the shot right now, that one shot that we have is going to take a substantially large amount of resources and time to rebuild up to this point that, you know, when people say startup founders don't have very much to lose, most of them are kind of young and they're risk-tolerant, that's actually not an accurate statement because the more you work on your startup, the more you have, the more you have to lose. Um, And you you put your reputation on the line.
0: What do you feel that you have to lose?
1: So for me, um, you know, I... I recently got married this year, right? So mm. uh, it's not just about me anymore. It's also about my family. Um, but even in a personal capacity, uh, I mean, this startup has been my brainchild, my dreams. Um, I'm also feeling, I also feel personally very responsible for um, our team members, the employees of the company. Um, I feel responsible toward the people who have funded us and given us the opportunity and all the people will buy in to this future that we paint um, because, you know, it's, we're, we're in, a, in a phase where we're proving what we can do. And uh, we're working with a technology that is largely driven by empirical data. Yeah. That's not fully understood at the moment how, how our technology works. So um, it's, that's a lot of risk. And uh, a lot of the times you feel like you're smashing your head kind of against the wall back and forth back and forth and then so all of a sudden you're like oh actually it's not that bad and then you work on something you realize oh i, I <laughs> you know i actually just like misjudged i'm still back to sp- or smashing my head against the wall there's a lot of periods of that and kind of going back to the, the the women partnership question that you had Jeannie is um a really great compliment to me um she's really great at uh technical details she is really she's really uh, i'd say just talented she's a prodigy at helping a lot of people who normally are are not used to working in a group um see how they can come together in a group and especially you know scientists postdocs people who are not always working in a team setting um she has created something quite innovative in the way that our our, our laboratory workflow works um, and nobody taught her how to do that. She figured that out. Mm. So she basically manages all of that. Um, she's the person who makes sure we move the needle in terms of our, our innovation laboratory development. And on the other hand, for me, you know, I, I love connecting with people. I love to share ideas, to get challenge ideas, um, and have very rigorous discussions with Jeannie
0: Yeah. And others. Speaking of rigorous discussion, I'd love to get your feedback on something.
1: Some people
0: or companies will buy back plastics as waste, and I know that China has a huge industry for that in comparison to the US. Do you think that China's lagging in terms of recycling? Uh, how do you think it compares in terms of the US plastic economy?
1: China's not lagging in recycling. China, if anything, is Definitely one of the companies, the countries that recycle the most. Um, The issue here Mm. isn't um, how much people try to recycle something; it's the technology and and what materials are actually recyclable. Um, So the concept of recycling, I I think maybe I could deconstruct a little bit more. Um, It means different things to different people.
0: What does it mean to you?
1: So at the beginning, you know, when I came across the concept, it merely means turning something that's waste, like, repurposing it into something useful again. Um, but you, but you can see how what you make, um, really changes the way you look at the process a lot. So now the way that I've come to see it is it shouldn't just make something that I can use at the end of life, but it should make a very good thing that would be competitive with an alternative currently made from a, you know, from oil, most likely oil. Um, that is actually true recycling is that you're supposed to make something that's virgin grade in the end because it doesn't really matter if you have a technology. But, like, if all you can generate are crude, you know, low structural integrity building blocks for something, and there's not really a market, and it doesn't really matter what your technology is. A real recycling technology is one that handles real waste that no one can use in large quantities so you can make an impact and turns it into a product that is high quality so it competes with other things generated from you know non-renewable sources, for example. And then it, it can make a lot of it and there's a big enough market to buy that. That is actually what real recycling should be. And I think the fallacy that we come across is just because something has the little triangle arrow symbol or is put in a blue bin or someone took it away, that doesn't, that doesn't really mean anything. It just means that it's circular, it's somewhere right now in the waste commodity market or in the landfill. Um, so, in, in terms of China, um, China until very recently, until July, has been the biggest importer of US waste. It doesn't just import US waste, also imports
0: all China. over the world.
1: Exactly, all around the world. Until recently, China has actually imported 40% of US plastics, um, not just plastic, scraps, scrap waste. Um, and the U.S. spends, um, I mean, to the U.S., and in some cases for paper and metal, China actually pays the U.S., and the U.S. pays China, and I'm talking about material facilities, It's a very privatized kind of trade market. Um, and that China pays the, the U.S. for valuable scraps, and the U.S. pays China to dispose of U.S. plastic trash because China doesn't really want it. Um, so this actually is a $1.5 billion Uh, Market, (laughs) Um, just trading to China from the U.S. of scraps. So this market right now is being shut down by the Chinese government. Um, The Chinese government first announced at the beginning, I believe, in February. I heard about the World Trade Organization um, that China no longer wants to um, accept any more scraps from around the world, especially the U.S.
0: Then this is an effort, right, to bring those efforts home, to bring recycling back to Chinese soil. Do you think that there's an opportunity for the technology that you're creating to be used in China? Is that something that's in a longer-term vision for you, or
1: it's definitely in um, our, it's definitely on our agenda. Um, it's in our plans to come back to China with our technology. The plastic problem looks different um, in different contexts. So, for example, Chinese plastic waste generally sees more liquid materials, liquid content in it whereas in the U.S., it's drier. And that has a lot to do with how the waste is centralized, what the plastic packages are normally perceived safe to be used for. Um, So, for example, in China, um, people commonly can just put soup, soupy, saucy material into plastic bags and give that. Or even in Europe, that's not perceived safe. You don't just put, like, you know, chicken noodle soup in a plastic bag and give it to your customer. You put it in a container, and the container goes in a plastic bag. So... Um, the waste from the U.S. generally drier, um, mm. and also it's it's got like more distinct pieces, whereas in China it kind of just it looks messier at, at the end of life. So it is easier to handle U.S. waste. Also because they ha- um, are you know there are one thousand five hundred material recovery facilities that have robust sorting technologies in Germany or France. Um, so. We're first working in the U.S. to prove our technology in relatively easier types of waste, um, and also to um, work on the different types of waste that are that are there, and figure out what is a sustainable business model that would be um, that would be scalable in in different countries as well.
0: Yeah, I could listen to you talk about these technical aspects forever because the aspect of China is still really interesting for you because. China maybe in the future. Where does this intersection come in? Why Why is that important to you?
1: Yeah, so um, I was personally born in China. Um, and when I was five and a half, I moved to Vancouver, Canada with my, my parents, who immigrated. Um, and then I moved to the United States for college, and I currently work and live there. So um, China has always been very special for me because... Uh, is where all of my extended family is, and I've also spent a full year of immersion education here in China. So I feel very culturally connected, yet not identical. <laughs> um, and I, I definitely want to be able to make an impact here, um, but I, I'm very cautious of um, you choosing the right approach um, because technology is something that, could do good or to do do really, really terrible things, depending on how it's introduced, what the culture is, and um, whether, frankly, society is ready to use it for good. Um, and our technology is at a point where it's still pretty nascent. Um, and But what I have been doing in the past few years is uh, come back to China quite frequently to stay updated with how... Um, the people who are really in the upper echelon of pushing sustainability in this country, how they're thinking. Um, for example, last year, we actually competed in a startup competition hosted by the Beijing Chaoyang government. Mm. Um, and they, were, they um, looked at 1,000 companies from 19 countries around the world, and we actually won first place internationally. In hey, congrats. Thanks. And, and what they were doing that competition was trying to find companies that they could bring to China, technologies that would help China. So there's clear validation um, for the need um, of our technology here. But what I'm really trying to figure out from all of my interactions and visits is I, I need to learn a lot more about how things work here. I need to learn a lot more about what the status quo of the problem is.
0: What still feels really opaque to you about waste management in China? What don't you have enough information on?
1: Yeah, so in, in China... Um, and this is it, true to the in the U.S. too, but in the U.S., just uh, you know, smaller population, less complex of a problem. In China, um, it's you know, it's kind of a hybrid between the U.S. and a com- country like Indonesia, where there's no no real even like active collection of waste. Right. Um, you know, in the U.S., waste is very formalized. Um, infrastructure, there's infra- there's very well-formed infrastructure for it, the private haulers have a certain type of truck, they give you a certain type of bin, they have a certain type of you know, everybody has the same plant you know, equipment <laughs> it's, it's a very mm-hmm. standardized in, in many ways, um, and some, you know, some places that are wealthier have more advanced equipment, some have older ones that are less good at sorting, but you know in China, it's not standardized yet, but it's also not like Indonesia where People are still doing open landfilling, and they don't even know. Like, I visited um, a landfill in uh, in Bali, near Bali Airport, and um, my friend went there with me with a drone, a DJI drone. We flew it at 120 meters above the ground to survey the size of the landfill. We couldn't see any of the borders at 120 meters above the ground. Wow! Yeah, and what was worse was that the landfill um, was located right beside a lagoon, and it was well covered actually. so if you just kind of like take a few bends in the lagoon, there are people doing extreme water sports. And the thing about open landfilling is that you know they didn't put any lining into the landfill so there was no protection of the toxic leachate chemicals flowing from the you know it was entering the lagoon a delicate habitat with mangroves and then
0: and people
1: and people and animals and um also there are people living in that landfill and um the people who were living there were picking through scraps and they would graze cows on the landfill. Um so there are cows drinking, you know, toxic leachate and eating food particles left on the plastics and also ingesting some of the plastics. So, you know, China's not that. China's better than that, um, most places, especially urban areas. But it's also not where you the US is. So um The approach in China is going to need to take quite a bit of uh, careful thought and design. And I'm not yet there. My team's not yet there in terms of the knowledge. And also, um, I think China also is at a point where waste is still something people don't really want to talk about, don't really want to, you know, it's illegal, for example, to just go to a waste plant and take some photos. Why
0: don't you think people want to talk about waste?
1: It's a sensitive subject for two reasons. Um, The first is it directly reflects how effective a government is. Um, it directly reflects, you know, it's it's kind of like air pollution. It's the same sort of thing as sensitive. It's something people can easily point fingers at and say, hey, you're not doing a good job. But it's the other thing is every single place in the world generates waste today. <laughs> so mm. it's, a, it's a problem. You know, I'm kind of frankly surprised at how little conversation there is and how little just like, uh, genuine support countries give to each other about the waste problem. But it's not just about countries, even, like, domestically, within among cities or townships. Um, the second reason is that you know it's, it's sensitive because ma- managing waste is oftentimes the largest spending on an area's budget. <laughs> For a city government, it's usually the largest spending. Really? It's true in China. I mean, China, the Chinese city governments might spend a lot of money on real estate development and things like that infrastructure yeah so but it is it is a major major spending so how that money gets used you know it's, it's a very sensitive topic so you have the different cultures around this right like in the u.s i visited 12 waste facilities on either coast i haven't seen so much of what's in the middle of the city yet, in the country yet and what i've seen is you know there are um, varying degrees of openness For example, Recology San Francisco actually has a learning center and like a museum. And on a certain day of every month, they open up to the general public. You just need to email them, and you can go on a tour. They give you a hard hat and a little vests, right? And then you just go along the entire sort line. You learn everything, and you know it's part of it is to show you how great of a job they're doing. But another part is so you understand. Um, but that's not really something you have in other places in the U S or, you know, you don't have that in China. Um, you don't even really see where the waste goes, it kind of just gets covered. And, um, sometimes when you do know where the waste goes is because you've seen the landfill like build up over the years and you're like, it's really stinky here. I know where that is. And and it's <laughs> disgusting. I'm so angry. The city has decided to put it there. You know, that's why this it's a very sensitive subject.
0: Interesting. I want to switch topics a little bit and sneak in a question just I know you told me about this one year you spent in China do you have any stories about when you were here in fifth grade and what sort of impression that left on you moving to Vancouver
1: yeah so um at that point I had already lived in Vancouver for about three and a half years and as a young kid you know your memory span is not that long.
0: No. When <laughs> right. I was about that age, I spent four or five months in France, and like you, you have some memories of it, but it's, it's you don't. It's not like core to who you are as a person. So I yeah. get that.
1: Yeah. So I, I think I actually because of that, I really enjoyed my time in China. Um, but the first two months, I was uh, quite miserable because you know my parents thought it was a good idea to just like leave me here with my grandparents. Um, and they went back to Vancouver. <laughs> so, so I, I was kind of here on my own. It was my first time being on my own. I was in a country, I, you know, a place I, I wasn't familiar with. And, um, my parents didn't really want me to reveal that, you know, we had immigrated because they didn't want people to treat me differently. Um, so it was difficult for me because, um, I didn't have any friends. <laughs> I also just like was not was not at the grade level. They put me directly in fifth grade. I was at like about first grade Chinese level. <laughs> um, so I I had a really hard time in the first two months. Um, it's
0: an adjustment.
1: It's a, it's a major adjustment, and for personal growth, it was a big impact on me. Um, my teachers, though, um, and this is I think from them I learned what it means to be to be focused and committed to something my teachers decided that um they were going to take me out of my normal classes and just teach me math and Chinese until I was at grade level because I guess the the thought is you know when you're at that age music art it's nice uh, but not yeah but it's not it's not like the most important thing to get together for your academics so I spent two months um you know, sitting out on most of my extra, like extracurricular classes or, or, or my, my less core classes. And then, um, just doing like math and Chinese. I think, you know, my teacher started with third grade and just like, you know, in two months I, I moved, like moved up two whole grades and, and like knowledge.
0: That's really impressive.
1: And as a kid, you can do that. You know, you're so elastic as a kid and mm. it's about having a teacher who believes you can do it, who, who knows how to who knows how to, like, tap you in the right way to get you to absorb knowledge. And, and I think just from the way they just, they were so focused about, the, like, the discipline, you know, the discipline of how to learn Chinese, how to, how to be, you know, how to think um, mathematically. It was, it was really, now I think about it, I don't think I've ever had teachers who were so committed to my excellence, uh, my academic excellence as, as those two were.
0: Thanks for sharing that, and I think we're just about running out of time, so I have to ask you one fun, light question. When you go grocery shopping, what sort of bags do you use to bring with you?
1: Yeah, I definitely bring cloth bags.
0: Any sort of designs on them? Are you more of a basic color, cartoons?
1: I have actually accumulated my canvas bags over the years, um, so I have a variety, Um, and also you know, I, my husband Robert and I we go shopping together. Uh, he also has his bags from over the years and I have mine. So I have a pen bag, um, one that I got from like orientation. And then I also have, um, I feel like some, some things, you know, I've gone to for startup events. So
0: each has a little bit of a story with, um, well, speaking of stories, really appreciate you sharing yours today. I think we've learned a lot about, waste management in the US and China, and also how your identity as a Chinese woman has played a role in starting up a company working in Silicon Valley and continuing to push the envelope in terms of recycling and waste reduction. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you do. I'm really thankful that you came on the show today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And that's all for today. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Episode suggestions, interview requests, and general inquiries can be sent to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com.